following message is from North Place Church. For more information about North Place Church, visit northplacechurch.com. I want you to look with me, if you will, please, to Ephesians chapter 1. And I'm going to read a passage that is actually a prayer. The Apostle Paul is praying over a church that he started, the Ephesian church. So we call him the Apostle Paul, but in these words, he's Pastor Paul. And Pastor Paul is praying over some of the people that he pastored. Ephesians 1, 17. Paul says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. Last week, in a very raw and transparent way, I told you about this remedial course in trust that God is taking me through, Trust 101. He's taking me back to the basics of what it means to trust him. And I thought that I had proven my trust to him multiple times in my life. There have been those moments in my life where I have taken unthinkable acts of steps of faith. I've taken those irrational steps of faith when they were acts of obedience. I felt he was leading me to do so. And I felt they were so irrational, so unthinkable that the average person would not do them. And as I look back on those moments in my life, I thought that those moments of irrational jump off the cliff kind of faith validated that I really trusted God. I want them to throw an image up on the screen that helps visualize this for us. Behind me, there are these peaks, you know, peaks and valleys, mountains and valleys. And every one of those peaks there behind me, they represent some moment on the timeline of my life, some moment on the timeline of your life. I was tempted to label them, but I didn't want you to see this as my timeline. I wanted to see it as your timeline. There are, every one of those peaks is a moment in your life where you trusted God beyond what was rational. Maybe he prompted you to be generous and you gave an amount of money away that was uncomfortable to you or even criticized by others for the kingdom in some way or another. In the same way we often get buyer's remorse, there is a remorse that often comes with these great acts of faith. We question where we write, was it really God? And then as we live in between that act of faith, waiting on the next big step of faith, there's this season of worry. And sometimes God doesn't come through for us. We question the act, we question God. And when God doesn't come through for us the way we want him to, Some of us often can get bitter in those dips, and then we recover, and then we move on to the next act of faith. I mean, there is the moment of surrender when, when one of those pinnacles for me is when I trusted him enough to be my savior. Another is when I trusted him enough to to surrender to the call to ministry. I wanted to be a doctor, and and I I gave up that desire and went into an unaccredited Bible. It's now accredited, but at that time, it was an unaccredited Bible college. All of the people that had invested in my education thought I was throwing my intelligence away, but that's what I felt like God wanted me to do, and with all these competing voices, I trusted him. That was one of those irrational moments of trust in my life. Then there are the moments when God spoke to Haley and I to live a year without a paycheck, and then the moments when God spoke to us to give our home away, and then the newest moment of trying to trust God about this ranch for abused kids and rural pastors. And so these are these moments in our life. And because I had performed, trusted in those moments, I took the step of faith in that moment. I believe that those moments, those peaks, validated my level of trust in God. But then as I began to look at this, I realized that 
there's as much distance between the peaks in the valleys, and those are the moments that are about our character. The peaks are the they're what define the perception of our life. The dips and the valleys between the mountain peaks is what defines the character of our life. Other people look at the outside peaks of my life and they've seen those acts of faith and say, wow, pastor's a man of great trust. But they didn't live with me between the peaks with all of the worry and the bitterness and the doubt and the question. And as I mature, the more I mature, the more I learn that trust is not only the willingness to take a single irrational step of faith, but also the willingness to trust God consistently in the small things daily over time. Here's what we talked about last week. Worry, pessimism, pride, and prayerlessness are symptoms of hearts that are controlling, have given up hope, and stopped trusting. I've always known, or at least as I've grown in faith and spiritual growth, I have learned that when there is a presence of worry in my life, I have a trust leak. I'm leaking trust somewhere. And the only way to remedy the fact that I'm leaking trust is to renew intimacy with God. Because the level of trust in any relationship with God or man is directly related to the depth of your relationship with God or that person. If you're having trust issues, you're having relationship issues, whether that's the relationship with God or your relationship with people. The remedy for distrust with God is to know Him more intimately. The more you know Him, the more you understand the blamelessness of His character, the more you understand the purity of His integrity, the more you understand the riches of His love, the more you understand the depth of His faithfulness. To really know Him is to really trust Him. So when I find myself worrying or pessimistic or distrusting, it's usually in moments when I've been so busy trying to fix this on my own that I haven't spent the necessary time in prayer and in relationship with Him that I need to. And when I'm not praying, my intimacy with God suffers. And when my intimacy with God suffers, so does my ability to trust Him. I've been chewing on that. I've been praying through that over the last few days. And while I prayed through it, I really believe the Lord dropped this thought in my heart for us today. People who trust the name of the Lord should be visionary people. We should see the world the way He sees it. We should see our circumstances the way He sees them. We should anticipate the future the way He's planned it. Instead of being warriors and pessimists, those who trust Jesus should be the most optimistic people on the planet. We should be visionaries. Now, our faith does, and trust does not cause us to overlook reality. We don't ignore pain. We don't pretend that suffering is not present. We simply understand that God has the power to deliver us from the circumstance. But we also understand when in His sovereignty, He chooses not to exercise His power we choose to surrender to his purpose in this moment of suffering or pain or trial. His purpose in that moment may be greater than what we can see or we can understand. So in some ways, we trust his power to deliver. 
And we trust his purpose in moments when he doesn't exercise his power. We trust his purpose that is bigger than what we can see. His character is blameless and just. And he has promised that all these things are going to work out to my good. Whether the good or the bad, all things are going to work together for good to those that love the Lord and are called according to his purposes. So when I trust him, I'm able to be a visionary. doesn't mean that I overlook reality. It doesn't mean that I deny pain. It doesn't mean that I ignore suffering. It simply means I trust a God who has a power to deliver, and when he doesn't exercise the power to deliver the way I would want to, I trust his purpose and what he is doing in the world that is greater than what I can see because his promise is all things work together for good for them that love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. People who trust in the name of the Lord should be visionary people. Christian living is visionary living. I want us to look back at the verse where we started a moment ago in Ephesians 1, and I want to look at Paul's prayer. And I want you to notice that as Paul prays over the Ephesians, that's what he is praying for. He is praying that God would open their eyes so they could see. They could see the promises of God above their circumstance. That they could see the hope to which they have been called instead of the suffering that they are currently enduring. Paul is asking that they be a people who are a visionary people. In Ephesians 1.17, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. He knows that trust is only born out of knowing him. Verse 18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his inglorious inheritance in his holy people. To me, to be a visionary is a desirable thing. It's the ability to have hope, trust, excitement, and anticipation about the future. But to some people, being a visionary is not a desirable thing. Here is one definition. Given to or characterized by fanciful or impractical ideas. A dreamer, not practical. For those who don't understand the source of our faith, or the source of our trust, when they look at our lives, we do appear fanciful, we do appear impractical, but if visionaries are impractical dreamers, then the publishers of Webster's Dictionary named their book for the wrong guy. Because if anybody ever personified what it meant to be a visionary, Noah Webster was that guy. He spent 20 years fulfilling his impractical idea of creating an American dictionary that had American pronunciation and American usages and American's words that were distinct from the British dictionary. His historic work introduced 12,000 words that had never been recorded in any dictionary. He was a visionary. To some, his plans appeared to be impractical. He set out to accomplish a goal. Some would have called him a wishful thinker. But as visionaries often do, Webster proved his critics wrong. The creators of the definition of the word visionary that I just read to you have confused the word visionary with wishful thinkers. Visionaries aren't impractical people. They're just daily commuters on the road less traveled to the land of what if. And I want to say that again. This is Ron Walters' definition of what a visionary is. Ron Walters is a pastor to pastors who is now retired. And this is what Ron Walters says that a visionary is. Visionaries are daily commuters on the road less traveled to the land of what if. 
Most people use their eyes for looking. Visionaries use their eyes for seeing. When you only look, all you can see is negativity. Morally, politically, religiously, there is suffering in the world, death in the world, persecution, volatility, ambiguity, uncertainty. It defines our world. Those things cannot be ignored. That is reality. They are there. But visionaries don't just look. That's what, you, that's what is there when you look. Visionaries don't just look. They use their eyes to see. They see past all the sin, all the devastation in the world. They see past it to the promise that God has given. Instead of only seeing the problems in a world like ours, only looking at the problems, visionaries see past the problem to the possibilities. Is it bad? Yes. Is it going to get worse? Yes. Just read your Bible. Don't be surprised when it happens. But visionary people don't ignore that reality. They understand that. But we understand that these things are simply a part of what has already been promised. On the other side of this age, there is an age to come. The darkness that is growing in the world around us is proof that we are nearing the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Instead of bellyaching about how bad it is, visionaries look past the reality of our world and see the promise of God that what is happening around us is simply creating an environment that fits biblically the environment that Jesus has promised to return back into. Some people that are politically minded, some politically minded Christians get frustrated with me that I will not wallow with them in despair over the state of our nation. I see why they have despair. I get it. From every arena, I understand that when you are a believer and you look at what is happening in our country, I understand culturally we are moving further and further awake of God. But instead of wallowing in despair, I see it differently. I see what is and what is coming as an opportunity for the real church to stand up. Nowhere in history will you find Christianity, anywhere in history, sustaining long periods of growth when it is fat and prosperous. Nowhere in history will you see the church, Christianity, sustaining growth when Christianity is the dominant religion of any nation. But if you go back to history from the times of the Bible all the way through into modern history, when Christianity is formed, forced to the side as a revolutionary or a fringe movement and it is persecuted, it is in those moments that the kingdom expands and the church begins to grow like wildfire. If you look at the world around us today, go back and study the church on the pages of the book of Acts. Go back and look at the church in recorded history and look at the church that is growing in our world today. The church in America is in decline, but the persecuted church around the world is growing like wildfire. Where the church is prosperous, corruption and scandal are leading its decline. Where the church is being forced into the fringes, not sponsored by the state, and even being persecuted, it is growing, it is being established. So if you're into personal comfort and you want things to stay the way they are or you want them to go back to the way they used to be, you've got reason to be pessimistic. But if you're kingdom-minded, if you're a visionary, you see the potential in this moment. The more I examine this culture, the more it looks like the culture that historical revivals and awakenings have broken out in. The more I examine the world that I live in, the more it looks like the world that Jesus promised to return back to. And so instead of bellyaching about the worry... 
I see the opportunity. We could be the generation that sees the coming of the Lord. When I look at the culture that I see, I see it against the culture of the world where Christianity was born in the early church. There are so many similarities to the culture where Christianity was originally birthed and the culture that we live in now. When you examine the cultures where revivals have broken out, great awakenings have happened, the church has exploded, people have come to Christ, miracles have happened, our culture is setting up to be the kind of culture that is the right atmosphere for a groundbreaking, earth-shattering revival. So instead of belly aching, yes, I know the enemy is making his way and I know that people are being deceived, but in my heart, I choose to see past. I don't look at what's there, I see what is there, and instead of looking at the reality, it's there, I acknowledge it. But in my heart of faith and trust, I believe that there is a God on the verge of doing something in the face of all of these things. Most people use their eyes for looking. Visionaries use their eyes for seeing. When I look at what's there, it's bad. When I choose to see what's there, I see nothing but possibility. The truest list of visionaries is found among God's people. Faithful followers that had impractical ideas, who saw things differently than the average person. Here's just a few. One of them is in Numbers 13. It's actually two of them, one incident. In Numbers 13, 12 spies were sent in to scout out the promised land to see if it was ready to be taken. And the, the spies came back, 10 of them. We call that the majority report. When the majority reported the 10 spies... They reported the obstacles and the giants that were in the land. It was a typical vision-killing moment. Their instincts took over and they concluded that victory was not possible. But there were two holdouts in that moment. It was a young Joshua and a young Caleb, and they brought what we call the minority report. They saw the same obstacles and they saw the same giants, but they saw them differently and they believed God had said they could possess the land. Numbers 13, 30, then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, we should go up and take possession of the land for we can certainly do it. In other words, Caleb was saying, of course there are giants and they're extremely large giants. That just makes them easier to hit. We can take the land. Visionaries think and talk like that for 15 years. The city of Jerusalem lay in rubble at another moment in history. The nation had been ransacked, outside invaders had come in and overtaken the people of God. The temple lay in ruins, the city lay in ruins, it had been burned and brought to rubble. For 15 years, the leaders of Jerusalem in this moment had waited. They had had other people come and try to rebuild the city, but because of outside invaders who did not want the people of God to rebuild, they kept having to go to war and the city was never being rebuilt until Nehemiah comes along. Nehemiah shows up assesses the situation, organizes and equips the crews with the right tools. He gives them weapons in one hand and tools in the other. And as they stood along the wall, he tells each man and his family to stand in the gap so there is no exposed place in the wall, so that when the enemy comes, they have the wall completely surrounded to rebuild the city. And he tells them to have their tools for work in one hand and their swords for battle in the other hand. Nehemiah cast a vision of a worshiping warrior. The only way this city is going to be rebuilt is if we work and we worship together and we know that the enemy is going to come after us in the process. So we're fighting battles on multiple sides, spiritual battles and people battles, but we must do what God has called us to do. This is what we learn from Nehemiah. Visionaries look beyond the hazards and they remain focused. 
Noah was no different. For 100 years, he clocked in every morning at the same shipyard. It didn't matter. The fact that it had never rained and that the nearest body of water was hundreds of miles from where he was or that no one else seemed to share his passion for boating. He kept building even when it didn't make sense. We learn from Noah that visionaries are typically a minority and they are undeterred by the criticism that is often thrown their way. Christian living is visionary living. We're to think differently and lead differently than the world because we are the signpost of God to the world around us. We are the visible agents of an invisible God in the world that we live in. Our words and our actions teach people to follow a God whose audible voice they've never heard, to love a Savior whose wonderful face they've never seen, to live according to a book that is forever under attack, and to plan a place in eternity, a place they have never been. And it takes wide-eyed visionaries to cast a vision like that, to follow a plan like that. Now, don't get me wrong. Warriors, in a sense, warriors can be visionaries too. Warriors have a vision of the future. They see or they think they see a future And they think they understand what that future will bring. Warriors live in the future. They create a vision of the future with their worry. And then they transplant themselves there in their minds. And then they feel all of the traumatic emotions that are associated with the future that has been created by their worry. You see, fear is often triggered by past events. Then it reacts to a crisis that is in the present And because we are driven by fear, a fearful event happened in the past that caused us to have real fear because it didn't work out, something didn't happen right, it hurt us, it was painful. We bring that fear with us into the future. There's a crisis in our life that provokes the fear from a past event that robs us of life in the present. And then we project that fear into the future. And what is going on yesterday and today robs us of life in the future because we become our own self-fulfilling prophets of doom and gloom. And here's the reality of a warrior. A warrior is going to repick. Their warriors are usually pessimistic and negative, And they're usually going to prophesy, in a sense, the future. They're always telling you what bad is going to happen. And most of the time, it's rarely as bad as what they say. But on occasion, because they say it's going to be bad every time, the chance of odds are, sooner or later, one time, it's going to be as bad as they really think it is. And when it turns out that way, they're going to say, see, I told you. But be, and it, all it does is reinforce in their life the mentality that they are trapped in. An experience in the past has generated fear. That fear is then triggered by a crisis in the present. And then we project that moment into the future. And worry today is robbing us of our life tomorrow. Worriers, in a sense, are visionaries too. They're just worrying and casting or anticipating the wrong kind of future. Ed Welch, in his book, Running Scared, says this, Worriers are visionaries minus the optimism. And I would say it differently. I would say warriors are visionaries minus the trust. Warriors are the wrong kind of visionaries. But trust can change that. You see, in order to be a visionary, you have to trust something. Even people that don't believe in God can be considered a visionary. 
But in order to be any kind of visionary, you have to trust something. And one of the things people often rely on to trust is themselves, self-trust. Somebody comes along, they've got the goods, they're pull themselves up by the bootstraps kind of person, and they're able because of self-reliance to pull it off. There are some amazing stories in our world of self-made men and women who made it to the top, they achieved their dreams, and after reaching the top, they sang the song, I did it my way. There is some truth to the self-reliant, self-made, self-trusting types, but what we usually don't hear is the rest of the story. You don't hear about what they lost or sacrificed on the road to the top of their mountain or how elusive happiness was once they finally achieved their goal. Yes, in rare occasions, there are some rarely gifted people that trust themselves and it gets them somewhere in life. But the question is, is it worth it to get what you always wanted and at the end of your life still be empty? Realizing deep down after you've spent your entire life chasing after something and then to finally achieve that something and realize deep, deep down that that something was not what your heart was really craving in the first place. It's the danger of trusting yourself. In 2 Kings 6, there's the story of a massive Aramean army. It's an enemy army to the people of God and they surround the prophet Elisha's bungalow. See, if you read 2 Kings 6, you'll find this out. It's actually a conversation that goes on between the Aramean king and his advisors. And they said to him, King, it's almost like this prophet Elijah is hearing the battle plans that you whisper privately in your own bedroom. And then he is telling the king of Israel what we are about to do. And they know in advance what our plans are. They really don't know exactly how Elisha knows. They don't know that he's a man of intercession and prayer. And that God is revealing those battle plans to him as the prophet so that he can advise the king. They don't understand that. All they know is that somehow Elisha seems to be eavesdropping on their war games. And they want to do everything they can to cut off the divine wiretap. And the only way to do that is to take out the prophet Elijah, Elisha. So they surround Elisha's bungalow, ready to take him out. And Elisha's servant walks out and sees this enormous army of Armaean firepower. And he comes unglued. He comes unraveled at the seams. In 2 Kings 6.15, it says this, When the servant of the man of God got up and went out early the next morning, An army with horses and chariots had surrounded the city. This is what he said. Oh no, my Lord, what shall we do? The servant asked. He's frazzled at the end of the rope. But listen to what the visionary prophet said. 2 Kings 6, 16. Don't be afraid, the prophet answered. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. He didn't see that. But Elijah was not asking him. He was looking, okay? He's looking. You see, one thing when you're looking, you understand something else when you start seeing. He was looking at the reality that was around him. Elisha was encouraging him to see past the reality to the promises of God and listen to the prayer Elisha prayed. Verse 17, open his eyes, Lord. The same prayer the Apostle Paul prayed for the Ephesians. Open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see. 
And the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. What did the servant see? He saw an angel army. He looked and saw the Aramean army, but when Elisha prayed that he would begin to have supernatural eyes to see supernatural things and to see the supernatural resources that are available to visionaries, his eyes were open. He saw the angel army that had been there the entire time. Those resources had been available the entire time, but he was unable to see them. This is what this story teaches us. Visionaries have resources undetected by this world. And let me tell you, you have resources that are undetected detected by this world. There is supernatural power available at your disposal. You can live your life looking or you can live your life seeing. I know that looking, we all have to look. We have to measure the reality. There is pain, persecution, suffering. We cannot ignore it. It would be frivolous, ungodly, and not in line with Scripture for us to do so. We have to respond. But the only way we can respond appropriately to the suffering in our world is to see beyond the suffering to the promise of a God who is able to deliver But in his sovereignty, if he chooses in this moment to not deliver, then we have patience to trust his purpose that is greater than what we understand in this moment. Visionaries understand resources are available to us greater than what we see. On August the 4th of 2013, a 19-year-old girl named Katie Lentz was driving on a rural Missouri road and was hit by a drunk driver. The way that she was hit, the front end of the car caved in on her half of her body and she was trapped. Paramedics, EMTs, the the firefighters, police officers rushed to her aid, blocked off the entire road, used all of the tools that were available at their disposal to get her out. They didn't work. They began to talk among themselves about watching this girl die and all of their options had come to an end. Literally, one of the firefighters said to the chief, Chief, we're out of options. I don't know what we're going to do. Those men, because of the reality of the situation, were looking. But a 19-year-old girl, a girl of faith, in the process of dying, chose to see. And I want you to see a report on ABC News tonight, how seeing visionary, sees the world differently, how seeing changed a moment. Instead of just looking, she saw past what was happening and began to see the potential of what was available in the moment. Watch this. A baffling and beautiful rescue, raising questions about the power of prayer. People are scouring nearly 70 photographs looking for some sign of a man they swear they saw at the scene of a car accident. He prayed a life was saved. So why did he disappear even from the photos? ABC's David Muir now on Faith and a Mystery tonight. Tonight it's being called the Missouri Miracle. Much of it though, still a mystery. A teenager with a beautiful smile, 19-year-old Katie Lentz, trapped in her mangled car, hit by a drunk driver, and first responders trying to get her out. Sheriff's Deputy Richard Adair won't forget when the fire chief turned to him in despair. He was concerned because he was out of options. The tools weren't working. and uh, It was, by that time, I, I said almost an hour. He said, I don't know how we're going to get her out. And I said, Raymond, we, I promised her mother and her that we get her out. While inside that car, Katie had one request. 
to pray with the rescuers out loud. And then suddenly right there amidst the rows of corn at the scene blocked off for nearly a mile, a man appears. He was dressed in a black priest shirt with a white collar. And the rescuers notice something else. He was carrying a small bottle. He had a small little white container of anointment oil is what it appeared to be. And he asked if he could anoint um, the girl in the car. And at first, my first thought was that it would possibly send the wrong message to Katie that maybe we had called a priest. But they allow him to do it. A sense of, of calmness come over her then, even more so than what she had been already. I can't be for certain who said or how it was said or where it come from. We very plainly heard that, that we should remain calm, that uh, our tools would, would now work, and that we would get her out of that vehicle. Moments later, it happened. A neighboring fire department arrives with a new set of stronger tools, finally able to cut through that frame. They all turned to thank the priest, but he was gone. In fact, in all of those photos at the scene, no sign of the priest. And tonight, family and friends are grateful. Whether it was just a, a, a priest as an angel, serving as an angel, or an actual angel that came in, he was an angel to, to all those and to Katie. The fire department's Facebook page tonight filling up fast. Do any of the responders know who the priest was that seemingly appeared out of nowhere? I would love to shake his hand. And tonight from Katie's mother, a message too. Very pleased that Katie's near tragic accident provides proof to all that miracles still happen. Her mother adding, please continue to pray for her. And in Katie's words, pray out loud. Pray out loud. And today we reached out to 15 churches within 30 miles of that accident scene. No one could tell us who the man was. And as for Katie, six and a half hours of surgery, many broken bones, but her mother says her face and that beautiful smile untouched. But Diane, everyone at that rescue scene touched by that stranger. And dozens of people saw him, and yet nothing in the photographs. Nothing. Just the story of that white bottle. What an amazing story. Thank you, David. People around her saw, they looked at reality. She didn't let that define it. She chose to see. A visionary that said, can we pray out loud? And a perspective shift changed everything. I don't know what is defining your life at this moment, but I really believe with all of my heart there was a word spoken to us a moment ago to this body tested and tried by the elders and shared with you. This is a moment of breakthrough for some of you. Some of your lives have been paralyzed by fear. Events that have happened to you in the past that have caused you to be bitter at God or bitter at people, things that brought harm and pain into your life, and those events are controlling your present and stealing life out of your future. The only way to move from worry to trust is to renew intimacy with God. But some of us are so busy that we haven't, we're tr too busy trying to work it out and do it ourselves that we haven't, our level of trust hasn't risen any because our level of intimacy with God hasn't risen any. In order to be the kind of people that we're going to be, in order to be the church that we need to be into the future, we're going to have to have more than a Sunday morning religion. We're going to have to have a deep, intimate relationship with God because to face what is coming and for the real church to stand up, we're going to have to be a trusting people. A people who do not ignore reality, 
But instead of looking, choose to see the possibilities that are in the reality because every one of our problems and every one of our circumstances is an opportunity for God to reveal himself for the world to know who he really is. I'm going to ask you to stand with me, if you will, all over this place today. And I'm going to ask the prayer team to come and to make themselves available, if they will. I want them to position themselves to pray with you. I believe with all of my heart that elder, I almost waited until this moment in the service to share the word about the elder, that the elder shared with me about this being a moment of breakthrough. They didn't know, the people that shared that word didn't realize today's topic was on trust. And I thought it would fit here, but the moment after worship just seemed right to encourage you. But in my heart, I really believe that there is a special moment available for us here to agree together. Agree together over that thing that has caused fear in your life, that is robbing you of your future. Agree together that this is your moment of breakthrough. God spoke that to somebody today, and you might as well come get it. It's here for the taking. Let us agree with you that this is the day where your entire perspective shifts from worry and pessimism to trust and hope and faith. Because God can deliver in this moment. But when he chooses not to for some reason in his sovereign plan, may he give us patience to trust his purpose that is greater than what we can comprehend or understand. I'm going to speak a blessing over your life today. Pastor Bear is going to lead a song that is familiar to us. Lord, uh, lead me to a place where my trust is without borders. Take me to places I haven't been in you, to trust you and know you in ways that I haven't known you before. And I believe these will be life-defining moments for some of us in this altar today if we can surrender, grow in intimacy, and let God teach us how to trust Him. Father, will you bless them and keep them? Will you make your face shine down upon them? Will you be gracious to them? Will you turn your countenance their direction today? And will you give them peace? Teach them not how to just look. We need to look. But teach us how to see past the problems to the promise and possibilities. I commit them into your hands today in Jesus' name. Amen. These altars are open today. God bless you. Thank you for listening to this message from North Place Church. Feel free to duplicate or to share this message. For more information about North Place Church, visit northplacechurch.com.